These papers show that there was considerably more diversity in Zion than we've previously supposed. Several of the Latter-day Saint elite adopted other religious persuasions. I knew that Brigham Bicknell had joined the Christian Science Church. What I didn't know was that other members of his family had also uh, done that, and I got that from these papers, and I think that in the session generally, those who attended didn't realize that it had really affected some of the elite in the organization. What you were just listening to were comments by Dr. Thomas Alexander, a prominent scholar of Mormon history. They stemmed from his experience as respondent at a session titled Christian Scientists in Zion that took place at the annual meeting of the Mormon History Association, held in June 2023 in Rochester, New York. Hello, I'm Jonathan Eder, host of Seekers and Scholars, and in this episode we have the opportunity to gather together with the participants in that session to learn about their papers and what they tell us about the character and spirit of interreligious engagement in Salt Lake City in the late 19th and early 20th century between two American-born religious movements, that of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and the Church of Christ Scientist. So it is my great pleasure to introduce the participants in this session and welcome them to Seekers and Scholars. This is how they appeared in order in the conference program. First, we have Kenneth L. Cannon II. His paper was on Brigham Bicknell Young, Mormon Christian Scientist. Welcome, Ken. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's great to have you. Ken is an independent historian. He has published articles in the Journal of Mormon History, Utah Historical Quarterly, and Dialogue. Journal of Mormon Thought. His book, George Q. Cannon, Politician, Publisher, Apostle of Polygamy, was published in 2023 by Signature Press. Ken has practiced law for many years in Salt Lake City. Next on the program was Mike Hamilton. The title of Mike's paper was Sisters Labor On, Early Latter-day Saint Women and the Beginnings of Christian Science in Utah. Welcome, Mike. Hi, Jonathan. Well, it's great to have you, Mike. Um, you're a familiar face for me. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, thank you. <laughs> but it's nice to have you in this context. So thanks for being a guest on Seekers and Scholars. Mike is executive manager of the Mary Baker D. Library. He holds a PhD from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign, where his dissertation was on educational values and practices among fundamentalist Mormons. His research and writing focus is on American religions. Next on the program was Christine Haglin. Christine's presentation was As Sisters in Zion, Christian Zionist Anna Craig and Religious Pluralism in Latter-day Saint Women's Associations. Welcome, Christine. Thank you. It's nice to be here. It's nice to have you, Christine. Christine is the author of Eugene England, a Mormon liberal, published by University of Illinois Press in 2021. And for many years, Christine was editor of Dialogue, a journal of Mormon thought. And finally, there was the respondent, the person who offers a vision for the papers in a broader historical context. We are so pleased to have Dr. Thomas Alexander with us to round out our guests. Welcome, Tom. 
Thank you for inviting me to comment. It's great to have you, Tom. Tom is Professor Emeritus from Brigham Young University, where he was the Lemuel Hardison Red Jr. Professor of Western American History and also the director of the Charles Red Center for Western Studies. He has won a number of awards for his publications, among them for Mormonism in Transition, A History of the Latter-day Saints, 1890-1930, published by University of Illinois Press. Tom is also a past president of the Mormon History Association. So we have a very robust group of people together for this episode of Seekers and Scholars. It's so fascinating for me to kind of get a glimpse into what happened at this conference. So when you have a session at the Mormon History Association annual meeting on Christian Zionists in Zion, what does Zion mean in this context? It is a metaphoric because it relates to the building of Zion in Israel. It's clarifying, Tom. It helps explain why Mormons refer to non-Mormons as Gentiles, and it's because of this metaphoric connection to ancient Israel. Interestingly, non-Mormons also refer to themselves as Gentiles <laughs> in the uh, 19th century here in Utah. Well, the Latter-day Saints were restoring primitive Christianity, and they expected to build Zion. That is, uh, a covenant community of people gathered together. And in the 19th century especially, uh, they expected Christ's second coming to take place very soon. And they tried this in a number of places in the Midwest and Upper South, it didn't work out. Uh, they ran into difficulty and considerable violence there mm -hmm. and then moved to Utah where the only people living there uh, were Native Americans and they were able to build Zion there. And the Latter-day Saints still use that term uh, for what they're doing, mm -hmm. uh, building a covenant community. So... How did this session come about? Who drove it? What were the beginnings of it? I think to see the beginnings, you have to go back uh, several decades okay. to Ken's article, Brigham Bicknell Young, Musical Christian Scientist, which appeared in the Utah Historical Quarterly uh -huh. in the 1980s, I believe. Is that right? Yeah, early 80s. Yeah, early 80s. And for me, decades later, that was my first window into the fact that there was a connection, mm -hmm. uh, some kind of overlap between the Latter-day Saints and the Christian scientists. And this is what got my curiosity peaked, wondering, were there other connections? Were there other overlaps historically? And that got me excited and exploring. Mm -hmm. Christine, what brought you to... Uh, this intersection of Christian science and Latter-day Saint history? Well, you too. Apologies. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's true. Yeah, no, I think Michael emailed me a year and a half ago or so to ask if I would come and talk to you, and he had read my book, which was astonishing to me. And so we, as you remember, we talked some about things that, Latter-day Saints might share in their attitudes towards education and progress with Christian scientists. So, Tom, as the observer and respondent to the papers at this session, 
What can you tell us about the kind of interest that was there on a subject like this about Christian Zionists and their interactions with Mormon society? I think one thing that indicates the wider interest, uh, Jana Reese, who writes for the Religious News Service, Mm -hmm. uh, attended this session. And that indicates, I think, some wider interest in topics of this sort that relate to the connections between Latter-day Saints and other religious traditions. Mm -hmm. So, Mike, you show up at the annual meeting of the Mormon History Association. Uh, What was it like? What did you encounter? Who was there? The Mormon History Association meeting in Rochester brought together, I think, about 600 people from various backgrounds and faiths to consider over a period of three days many aspects of Mormon history through panels, presentations, session talks. That's fascinating. So, Ken, it sounds like in some ways you got this whole thing started, albeit a few decades ago. Tell us a little bit about the research and what you discovered in writing your paper and then presenting it again, refreshed, at this recent conference of the Mormon History Association on Bicknell Young, a Mormon Christian scientist. The interesting thing about Bicknell Young is he came from this kind of extraordinary Mormon family, the best known of the post-Joseph Smith period families, and maintained that certain relationship he somehow contributed to or was part of the conversion of all of his sisters and some of his nieces and nephews of his brothers who did not become Christian scientists. So uh, I stumbled on Bicknell Young when I was in, I don't know, I was in graduate school or law school. Uh, I read a thing by Leonard Arrington, who was uh, one of the preeminent LDS historians, uh, in an essay called Centrifugal Forces in Mormon History. And he had a paragraph about somebody named Bicknell Young, who was a nephew of Brigham Young, who eventually converted to Christian science and became an an important figure uh, in Christian science. I was intrigued. So I spent time in the university library, which had a nice little collection of histories of Christian science. I had done research for Tom Alexander and Jim Allen going through Salt Lake City newspapers for a book that they did and had stumbled onto him separately. And I uh, spent a little bit of time in the Christian Science Reading Room in Provo, Utah, finding information about Bicknell Young. There are interesting lines in his life. He was a world-class baritone. He went from playing Captain Corcoran in HMS Pinafore, Gilbert and Sullivan's first sort of international breakout hit, in an amateur uh, production in Salt Lake City. Everybody loved it so much. I said, you need to go away. You need to go to Europe for further training. To six months later, he was attending a music school in London called the National Training School for Music, whose principal was Sir Arthur Sullivan, who he became very close to. And he performed in the Royal Albert Hall mm-hmm. in, in London while he was performing there. He could have stayed in England. He, he married one of his teachers, Eliza Mazzucato, who was from the most prominent music family in Milan. Her father was the director of the Milan Conservatory. So they expected him to stay and teach or perform in operas in Italy or in Great Britain. Instead, they moved back to Salt Lake City and started a music school. But he developed this practice where he would 
after he sang something, an aria or a, you know, a ballad or a sacred music, he would then spend time lecturing on it. He'd talk about the history and the cultural orientation and the importance of it. My wife would say he had the explaining disease. He had to make everybody understand. He had to make everybody understand what the music meant. In about 1890, he was very ill. Treatments were not working. So probably through a woman who became kind of the leading Christian scientist in Salt Lake City named Lucretia Kimball. They called her Kitty. She was a very close friend. She suggested he go to see a Christian science practitioner. He did. He was healed. He and, and Eliza continued their music careers but studied Christian science and eventually joined the First Church of Christ Scientist in Chicago where they were living and, and uh, teaching and performing. And then he met a guy named Edward Kimball, who was a prominent uh, lecturer and teacher in Christian science, who lived in Chicago also, and eventually uh, was made a member of the uh, Board of Lectureship, which he served on for decades, sharing his views of Christian science all over the world. He, he had this extraordinary voice. I would have liked to have heard him speak almost as much as I would have liked to have heard him sing. He served as the first reader in, of the Mother Church from 1917 to 1920, uh, Edward Kimball, in, in a letter to Mary Baker Eddy, said he's the finest of the second generation mm -hmm. of Christian scientists. So, Yeah. Well, I, I love the title of uh, your paper, uh, Brigham Bickham's Young Mormon Christian Scientist, because it, it brings up the question for me, and I'd love to hear what other people think, that um, in terms of one's identity after conversion, what, what does that mean? How much of what you were and how much of what you've become sort of intersect? I think there's probably a lot of ways to think about that. And others, I'm sure, have thoughts on this. One thing that kind of interested me, and it really in some ways was Ken who introduced me to Lucretia Haywood Kimball's story. Mm. I also along the way discovered the story of Bicknell Young's sisters and mm -hmm. focused on one of them in my paper but the thing that kind of fascinated me was, while there maybe was some decisive change in the lives of these people, in some ways I thought it was remarkable sort of the gentleness of it. There didn't seem to be the kind of alienation uh, that, you know, marks sometimes conversion experiences where all the past is completely left behind and maybe alienation from uh, relatives and friends. I don't know in detail. That may have occurred in some instances or places. But what I saw with especially the women who I was interested in in my paper was this kind of continuity. They just kind of reoriented themselves in their sphere. And I think it says a lot about them and a lot about the community that they were in, that they weren't driven out. They had to find a new place and in some ways perhaps a new identity. But conversion there meant something that was both interior. There's obviously a kind of change. You know, we have Lucretia Kimball's speech at the dedication of the Christian Science Church in 1898. She's very fervent and very grounded in this new teaching she's taken on. But as I looked at it, I thought, you know, a lot of what she's saying and a lot of how she's thinking owes a lot to where she came from. It helped me to think of conversion, I think, in it may be a new way that gives some grace to sort of both identities that somebody's had in their lifetime. Yeah. Um, I think as good post-Enlightenment Americans, it's hard for us not to think 
of religion in very Protestant terms. That is, religion is an assent to a collection of beliefs. It's an essentially private thing that happens in your head or your heart, and it has to do with what you what you think about God and how, how you believe. And one of the things that is especially interesting about early Mormonism in this Utah period where they were geographically isolated mostly is the ways in which religion functioned as a complicated web of belonging. It was belief, yes, but it was also practice and it was your people. It was where you where you fit. And I actually think religion still works like that much more than we give credit to. We tend to think of it as a fairly cerebral phenomenon and early Mormonism won't let us ignore the practices and habits and material objects that make up lived religion. The prominent Latter-day Saint historian Richard Bushman said that if he had to choose one word to describe what Mormonism is, he would say association. Mm, that's one of the things I know I found most interesting about both Bicknell Young, Lucretia Haywood, Henrietta Young, the young sister I focused on, was just that. Of course, yes, there was this sort of shifting of beliefs and convictions, but it was to see them in a couple of cases very much continuing to operate in their context and making their way through that web of relationships and reading not a lot, but a couple of fascinating references, for instance, to uh, Lucretia or Kitty Kimball, one by her mother-in-law, who was a leading figure in the Relief Society, the Women's Organization of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, in which there was a kind of matter-of-factness about Keedy's direction and and quite a clear understanding of what she was doing and what it was about, an interest and a kind of fraternity that was very touching, actually. And the other letter was after Keedy's death in 1920, when Frank Kimball, her husband, received a letter from Heber J. Grant, who was the the president of, of the Mormon Church, Let me read part of that letter to you. It's dated, At Home, April 22nd, 1920. My dear Frank, I have been awake for several hours. I am trying to break myself of the habit of writing letters all hours of the (laughs) night, but I have concluded to have a little chat with you this morning. First, don't notice my penmanship as I am lying in bed writing this and shall try for some sleep after I have finished my letter. Frank, I want to assure you, I love you with all my heart, and I have done so from the time we were boys together. You are the most generous man I have ever known, and the Lord says he loves a cheerful giver. My heart has gone out to you in loving sympathy ever since your beloved wife, that's Lucretia Haywood Kimball, passed away. I have been thinking of you this morning time and time again, and of your wife, and of my wife, Emily, and of our happy times together when we were all youngsters and before any of the old Wasatch crowd were married. (laughs) Perhaps one reason that may have called to my mind old and happy times is the fact that today is Emily's birthday. Later he says, I have prayed to the Lord more than once since your wife passed away that he would bless and comfort your sorrowing heart. Well, Mike, that really is so revealing, I think, about what Christine was talking about in the spiritual life of these people. Association, you know, means so much, perhaps, you know, almost as much, if not as much as 
um, the belief system, the dogma. These letters are, are wonderful. Where did you go to compile the material from which you wrote your paper? I was directed to the church history department, the church archives of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, mm -hmm. where a researcher ably assisted me wow. and seemed just as thrilled as I was when she found some letters concerning a Lucretia Kimball written by Heber Grant to Frank Kimball. And this is just a sampling of one of them. I found material on Keedy Kimball both in our own archives and in the archives of the Mormon Church. So this is really an example of two denominations' archives speaking to one another to, to kind of bring about new insight, new information to offer uh, historiography. Definitely. Well, that's great. I noted also in that letter from Heber Grant to Frank Gimbel mention of the Wasatch Group. Um, it seemed to have some real importance for him and maybe in the collective memory of these people we've been talking about. What was the Wasatch Literary Association, I think is what it was called? So Wasatch Literary Association was a group of the best and the brightest people in their probably early 20s who gathered together for six or seven years in the late 1860s. And among them were Bicknell Young, were Keedy Kimball, who, you know, was his long-term friend that he, he met and got to know there, were Frank Kimball, Keedy's husband, were Heber J. Grant, who eventually became an apostle in the LDS Church and president, long-time president, probably longest-time president of the church. And it was just a fun group. They were lively. They were clever. They were smart. They loved to sing together. They loved to debate each other. And they all developed. I mean, you know, uh, Bicknell Young had an extraordinary music talent, mm -hmm. but he was also an extraordinary speaker. And some of that he learned starting in the Wasatch Literary uh, Club in mm -hmm. Salt Lake City. Big influence on all of these people and big influence by all of these people on the world over the next 50 years. So Yeah, it's fascinating to think about in this sort of pioneering community that there is this profound and intense attention being paid towards culture. Lots of Brigham Young's children were actors and actresses. It was a family trait. Mm -hmm. And Brigham Young was too in Nauvoo. And Brigham Young was too. They were lively folks and they and they liked <laughs> to have fun and they liked to act and they liked to perform and they liked to think. Right. The Wasatch Literary Association was not at all unusual. There had been philosophical societies and polysophical societies yep. and, and all of these groups and women in particular had many of these groups. There were at least during the time that I looked at in Provo in the 1890s, there were at least three or four groups meeting all the time, and their meetings were organized around presentations about things like the Roman Empire or organic evolution. Mm. That one was one where the minutes just cut off, like some some things were, <laughs> were, were a little this difficult. This is just between us. Yeah, but um, the society that Anna Craig, the Christian scientist, was in had two presentations a week about various topics. They were, they, were, they were very serious about trying to learn. So, Christine, tell us about Anna Craig. She's a little bit different from the other Christian scientists we've been discussing so far in Zion in that she didn't grow up in a Mormon family. She didn't grow up in Mormon society. So, Anna Craig was married to a railroad man mm -hmm. um, who was assigned to 
Utah, and so that's that's why she went. But she was also trained as a kindergarten teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, the kindergarten movement had come to the United States from Germany in the mid-1850s, and it's very interesting because unlike many movements that spread east to west in the United States from, you know, eastern metropolises, this was a movement that had its first foothold in the United States in Wisconsin. And then St. Louis is also very prominent in the development of kindergartens. Anyway, Anna Craig moved to Utah in the early 1890s. And it's a time when the pressures about polygamy have started to ease a little bit. Utah is moving towards statehood and becoming civilized. So even the Presbyterian women are a little more relaxed about their kindergartens (laughs) trying to convert parents, um, which had definitely been a motivating factor in the the earliest kindergartens in Utah. And so, so she arrives at a propitious time, right? There's space for her. And she arrives in Provo, which had fewer Gentiles in it. So there weren't separate Gentile and Latter-day Saint clubs as there were in Salt Lake. So she just joined one of the Latter-day Saint clubs called the Cirrhosis Society, which still exists Uh. in Utah, still meets. And she began presenting ideas about kindergarten. And the kindergarten movement is based in ideas that seem commonplace to us now, that children have personalities already and that part of education is helping them to find what is good and, and wise within themselves. And that being kind to children, letting them play um, instead of, you know, sitting down and, and trying to drill content into their heads is actually more effective. So those ideas were part of the kindergarten movement, and they were compatible with both Latter-day Saint and, I think, Christian science views of human nature, this optimistic focus on improvement and the idea that human beings are essentially not so bad, <laughs> you know, um, and that, that there is good in children. She teaches for seven or eight years. Although it was not always comfortable for her, she, in 1894, writes a letter to a prominent kindergarten teacher, trainer, professor in the East, and uh, says she's afraid that they're going to fire her from the Brigham Young Academy where she was teaching. She said, it's not customary for Mormons to employ Gentiles in their schools, and I think I am the only Gentile employed in the territory. One half of the board looks upon me with frowns and displeasure. Then, then she's speaking of Carl Mazur, who was the head of Brigham Young Academy. She says, you will find Dr. Mazur quite progressive and learned, but with all these good qualities, he is still a staunch Mormon and a pillar <laughs> of the church. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't all rainbows and butterflies all the time. Although she seems to have been well-liked. It may have been her personality, but she was elected vice president of the Sorosis Club after she'd been in it for two or three years. So she got along well. And I think after her teaching career, did she serve as a Christian science practitioner for a number of years? She's in the, what's the record called? Where The Christian Science Journal. Yeah, she's, she's in there for a couple of years as mm-hmm. a practitioner. She's mm-hmm. listed, but only for a couple of years. Right, right, not continuously. Mm-hmm. So, Mike, your paper on Lucretia Haywood Kimball and Henrietta G. Young was it also about them as Christian science practitioners, practitioners of Christian science healing. Um, who were their clients? Who were their patients? That's a very interesting question, and uh, I'd like to learn more about that. But it appears that the way Christian science gained a foothold in their community was through people ministering to people. Mm-hmm. And 
Uh, so their patients would have been uh, everything from family members to members of the public who sought them out for a variety of different needs. Physical healing would be one aspect of it, as uh, Ken mentioned with Bicknell Young, uh, but also for solutions of all kinds of problems. And uh, Henrietta Young ran her practice, had her office there at the family home where she lived with her mother and her unmarried sister, Fanny Young. And Fanny also joined Henrietta in this kind of um, ministry. Mm -hmm. But were their patients Mormons as well as Christian Sinus, as well as others? Or Well, I, I would expect so. You know, of course, by the ethics of Christian science, the communication between patients and practitioners is always confidential. Mm -hmm. But yes, I would expect so. The reason I think so is that in a survey of the testimonies from that period printed in the Christian science magazines, those that originated in Utah, there are a number that come from people who are there in Salt Lake City. And of course, Salt Lake City also has a diverse population, but I'm sure among those folks were folks who were Latter-day Saints. And by the way, no reason to think that many of the people who sought them out for help didn't remain Latter-day Saints. Mm -hmm. One of the things I think we need to understand also is that after John Taylor became president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, he eliminated a boycott that Brigham Young had established against Gentile businesses. And in 1893, uh, when the uh, Salt Lake Temple was going to be dedicated, Wilford Woodruff, who was president of the church then, invited a large group of community leaders uh, to come to the temple and go through it and see what the temple was like. Hmm. And that brought a lot of people together who weren't Latter-day Saints to see what was going on in the community. There's a lovely editorial, which is one of two things that I found that Anna Craig had written. And this is an editorial from 1905 in the Christian Science Sentinel, where she really, I think, gives beautiful voice to the sentiment of what people were trying to do in this outreach. She says, The mist was very heavy one day, and as I looked out of the window, I could not see across the street. There was, however, no doubt in my mind that the houses and trees were still there. And this suggested the thought that the true man may be recognized through spiritual discernment when he cannot be seen through material sense. Mortal mind is the mist which hides our brother, the reflection of God, and effort is needed at all times to make an unreality for error. Sometimes the question presents itself, am I my brother's keeper? If we saw our brother disappearing in a quicksand and could save him even at a great danger to life, would we not do it? By obeying the word of God, we become missionaries to all men. When we let the light of divine love beautify and hallow our lives, we thereby find our own in our brother's good. Mm. I remember when you quoted that. That was really pretty touching. Yeah, that last sentence, I think, is just lovely. We find our own in our brother's good. We all in the room sort of shared something in that moment. It's been fascinating to relive this session that you all participated in at the Mormon History Association held in Rochester uh, this past June on beginnings was the theme of the conference. So thanks so much, Ken Cannon. Thank you. And thanks so much, Tom Alexander. Thank you very much. I've appreciated it. And thanks so much, Christine. Thanks. It's lovely to have been with you. And thank you, Mike, as always. 
thanks and a special heartfelt thanks to Tom, Ken, and Christine for being on the journey with me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Seekers and Scholars, where we gathered with the participants in a session at the Mormon History Association where they focused on the subject of Christian scientists in Zion. We hope you'll join us for our next episode as we look at the lives and careers of Risa and Ernest Pisco. They were refugees from Nazi-controlled Europe. They came to the United States, where they found new lives and new meaning in working for the Christian Science Monitor. I'm Jonathan Eder. Thank you so much for listening to Seekers and Scholars. This podcast was produced by the Mary Baker Eddy Library. Copyright 2023.